0: Welcome to Support for Survivors, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse. Our host is Shaughnessy Terrell, an attorney on Cohen and Milad's sexual abuse litigation team and a former deputy prosecuting attorney for the Marion County Prosecutor's Office Special Victims Unit. She will explore resources available to help survivors on their path to healing and how the community can come together to help these survivors and find ways to end sexual abuse. This is Support for Survivors.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Support for Survivors, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse, as well as professionals and allies within the field of sexual abuse and assault. I am your host, Shauna C. Terrell, and I'm an attorney on the sexual abuse litigation team at the law firm of Cohen and Malad in Indianapolis. Today, we have an extra special episode. I am thrilled that we have not one, but two. Brilliant, fierce, determined child protection advocates on the show. We have Marcy Hamilton and Katherine Robb with us today. And by here, I do mean virtually. We are all respecting the proper social distancing guidelines and are not gathered in the same place. Um, Marcy is a lawyer and the founder, CEO, and academic director of Child USA, a nonprofit academic think tank at the University of Pennsylvania dedicated to interdisciplinary evidence based research. We will explain what that means. To prevent child abuse and neglect, she is also a widely regarded scholar in constitutional law and is the Robert A. Fox Leadership Program Professor of Practice and Fox Family Pavilion Resident Senior Fellow in the Program for Research on Religion at UPenn. Prior to moving to UPenn, she was a law professor at the Cardozo School of Law in New York City. Catherine Robb is also a lawyer, legislative advocate, law instructor, and executive director of Child U.S. Advocacy, the sister organization of Child USA. She's been fighting to pass meaningful sex abuse legislation for 14 years in multiple jurisdictions. As an outspoken survivor of child sexual abuse, Catherine continues to use her voice to implement common sense legislative change. Catherine has also spent over 25 years as a law instructor preparing law students for the bar exam in jurisdictions all over the country. Now it's hard to believe, but those are actually very condensed versions of their bios. These are two very, very accomplished individuals who have done so much. And if I was going to sit here and talk about everything they've done and everything they do, we would be here all day. So I'm trying to keep it as short sure as possible. And if it's not already obvious, I have the utmost respect and admiration for both of them. So Marcy and Catherine, welcome. Thank,
0: Thank you. you. Great to How be are here. We?
1: Great. How are we doing? <laughs> I mean, that's a crazy question in these times. <laughs> Well, you know, it turns out that
0: working from home is pretty efficient. Uh, I was wasting a lot of time in my car, so uh, so far, so good for Child USA, at least.
2: Right, that's great. No, no, no more uh, time in the airplanes is is actually a nice thing nowadays.
1: I now. bet getting some more time at home. And my commute—it was never bad, it, but it went from 30 minutes to two minutes, so that's nice. Walking from the bedroom to the office. And you know, we were talking a little bit before. We're living in these what I'm calling quarantine rules. I think we're all either wearing sweatpants or slippers. I did take a shower today, so you know, it's all about balance. <laughs> Bro. Um, <laughs> I really am so happy to have you both here. I was lucky enough to meet the both of you when you came to Indy in January of this year, which again, here in the age of COVID seems like a lifetime ago. When you came yeah. into town to meet with Senator Aaron Freeman, who's also going to be on the show on civil statute of limitations reform. We spent quite a bit of time together and it was really enjoyable. Actually, when I was driving home that night, my mom called me and she knew that I was so excited that you guys were coming into town. And she's like, how was it? And I said, you know, you know, those moments in your life where you meet someone and you just click and you think these are my people. I was like, I had a day like that today. And she was like, oh, that's so great. And so <laughs> it was it was wonderful. And I know that my colleagues, Greg and Amin, I felt the same way. We really learned a lot from you and just had a great time hanging out with you. So thank you again for coming. And I'm, you know, hopefully you're going to come again here by the end yeah. of 2020. or we, 2021. we really enjoyed
0: it. We really did. <sighs> yeah, it was
1: it, it, it was our pleasure. It was our pleasure yeah. to be there. Awesome. Okay, so I would like to start off with each of you just telling us a little bit more about yourselves. We would love to hear what drives you and makes you passionate about the work that you do in protecting kids.
0: Well, uh, so let me just start just to say that I really came at the children's issues from a law and religion perspective. I was uh, a scholar, still am a scholar in that field, at a case at the Supreme Court. And the very short story is that when I learned that clergy sex abuse victims were not able to get justice in almost every state because of this artificial deadline, I was just appalled. And to be perfectly frank, I wrote uh, justice denied what America needs to do to protect its children or what America must do to protect its children as a one-off activity. I thought it was so obvious, I would just write it so everybody would understand the need And then I would go back to doing fancy constitutional law. And 20 years later, uh, not only did that not happen, I had to start a nonprofit. So uh, um, a lot of barriers, but uh, things are better. And uh, I've just been blessed to uh, be able to work with and and become dear friends with Catherine over the, the time of being able to work on these issues.
1: That's awesome. How about you, Catherine?
2: So I, I came into this, I met Marcy Hamilton, my dear friend and colleague, and it's <laughs> such an honor to work from her and always learn from her. And plus, we have a lot of fun, too. <laughs> I met Marcy about maybe 14, 15 years ago, Marcy, it's been a long yes, time. And was, we, no. we met in, in the fight in New York. I am, like you said earlier, I'm a survivor of child sexual abuse in New York, so, you know, I I got involved in this for personal reasons, but also as an attorney, as an educator, as a mother and and quite frankly just as a reasonable woman, everything that Marcy said made complete sense to me and I couldn't understand why it didn't make sense to so many <laughs> others, especially our leaders. <laughs> so I quickly I quickly gained a lot of respect for Marcy, and we came close. And as you know, we, we fought in New York for you know, well over a decade. It's it just become my passion to do what seems to me, and, and certainly what Marcy just said, it just seems so s- simply the right thing to do, that our laws should reflect that. So I'm just driven to it and I'm not gonna stop working on this type of legislation until Indiana and every other state in this country does the right thing and protects its kids and, and gives victims and survivors justice. And I'm happy well, to f- be doing it with people like you.
1: Oh, <laughs> that's so sweet. I am just so thrilled that you all are doing it. Because you're both incredibly mm-hmm. talented, intelligent driven people. And so, you know, a lot of people are that way, but they, you know, put their efforts elsewhere. And so to do it to benefit kids and to protect kids is just such a, a wonderful thing. I mean, you, you've been doing this astronomical work together for some time, but as you mentioned, you're also very good friends. Marcy, I believe I've heard you say that Catherine gets you through these difficult waters and that you are both yes. pretty certain that you were sisters in her former life. And I have to point <laughs> out for our listeners, you actually have really cute, affectionate nicknames for each other. And I would love for you to tell us about that.
0: So in the fight for New York we had to do something and and Catherine is really good with nicknames. She 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 is the original ambassador of all time. She can talk to anybody and still talk to them after she talked to them. Me <laughs> I talk to people and I have a viewpoint and sometimes they don't want to talk to me again, which is kind of hurtful, but that got me the name of captain. So I'm the captain. She is decidedly the ambassador
2: to this day. And so, yes, it's very true. So I I, I think I said to Marcy uh, one time moving through one of the Senate hallways in New York, I, I think she was, you know, bustling quickly in front of me and I think annoyed at some ignorant legislator at the time, and I think I said something like, oh, captain, my captain, and she is just, she's just such an amazing leader, and commands everyone's, you know, the audience of everyone, and, you know, she's just so incredibly bright, and articulate, and passionate, and to me, she's the captain, and she's
0: running the ship, <laughs> so.
2: First time she stuck. said it, I was like, okay, I know
0: captain. I said, wait a minute. You're not calling me Captain <laughs> Tennille, are you? That was my favorite a <laughs> <movie> again. <laughs> That's so funny. So,
1: well, well it know- stuck. It, it just stuck. Well, you know, obviously, you guys have figured out what works for you in order to be successful. And you figured out like what your roles are and what you know, and you complement each other so well. And because of that, you have achieved such great success. And so it's really, really cool to, to see that. I talked about a little bit in your in initial introduction that, Marcy, your CEO of Child USA, and Catherine, your Executive Director of Child U.S. Advocacy. Can you guys each tell me what your organizations do and the relationship between the two entities? Marcy, if you want to start.
0: Sure. So Child USA is a 501c3 nonprofit. It's a charity that does two things. We have a social science department and a legal department. And we research and put together the best law with the best social science to solve the problems of child abuse and neglect.
2: And so, simplified child version US of advocate- all the great work.
0: Sorry. <laughs> yeah,
2: right. So, I uh, child. You know, I always think of Child USA as the think tank. They're they're the super super bright people that are gathering all the data, <laughs> the research, the research, the science. You know, the facts that I can use as a five hundred one c four. I have a little bit more liberty with lobbying. I can take my gloves off a little bit more, which, by the way, I really like to do. (laughs) They give me all the data that, well, obviously a lot of people use Child USA's data because it's just fantastic. But I get to use that data when we're trying to push legislation and just trying to give, you know, leaders and, you know, governors and the general public, whether Marcy and I are on, on some local or national show, we will give the public the data so they get an understanding about why this law is so important. So they really give me the muscle to take to give a good swing when I need to, and just really to educate educate the public and to educate legislative leaders all over the country. We we are so- actually A very effective one-two punch,
1: so to speak.
0: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. That's a fact.
1: Great symbiotic relationship, and you mentioned when you're on shows and things like that, and I think it is just important to note that, I mean, we'll talk at great length about this here in a moment, but you guys are the leading authority on certainly um, statute of limitations reform, but other things, and you've been featured on, my goodness, how many different news programs, articles you guys have been in every medium every platform everywhere from shoot the New York Times to well here this is was probably like the bottom of the barrel when it comes to the things that you've done no, no, no. <laughs> do you guys enjoy that do you like being able I mean I think it's great that you you've got the people to help you get your message out there
0: we love it and you know this is about both of us have a mission to help the world improve the problem of child sex abuse. And so we're worried about the children right now during COVID-19 locked away in their homes. And we're also worried about the adults who were sexually abused as children. So, So we have this huge problem and it's energizing to be able to literally spread the word and to get the information out there you know, when I started Child USA, I had been using like six research assistants a semester. God bless Cardozo Law School letting me do that. But I mean, it, it turns out I needed two departments and a social media department and management, and we could still, we, we, we will still grow. There's a tremendous need for explaining and turning this mysterious, denied reality into just facts. And I just learned early on, the lawmakers, if we didn't have data for them, they were like, okay, well, we'll listen to some stories, but we've got other things to do. And then they would go off and talk to some insurance company about data. Uh, And data would be real to them, but what we were saying was just too touchy-feely. Really, I started Child USA because we needed the data, and we needed it for this, we need it for vaccination. We're especially going to need it for vaccination during covid that's kind of my passion. What Catherine brings to this, and thank God she agreed to do, be a leader in Child U.S. Advocacy because we desperately needed her. What she now does is she translates that state by state in a really effective manner that is, I mean, she's, got, she's a survivor, she's got the experience, and she's a lawyer. There's no one who would have been better to run advocacy. I just thank God I asked her. I was afraid she'd like hang up on me, but she said, yes, it was good.
2: That's great. And I I was honored to say yes. I just, you know, right before COVID really hit, I was in Kansas and I was speaking before their judiciary committee. And, you know, it it was an interesting environment there. And there's some great people that are gonna hopefully do really great things. And hopefully Marcy and I can really help them do that. But one of the things I was able to do, I, I actually spoke for quite some time. I think I shared this with you, Marcy. What I was able to say to this Judiciary Committee is, look, it is your job when you know of a danger to, the, to your constituents and to your state and your society, when you are given data and you now know this science, this data, this research, this evidence, it is before you, that triggers your duty then to act and do something about it. And I kept saying to them here's the data, here's the social science data from Child USA, here's the legal data from Child USA, this is what is happening in other states because of the research. And I kept saying to them now you know, now you know the facts. Now you know the data and you are called upon to do something with the knowledge that you now have, this very reliable scientific data that you have, you are called upon to do something. And it really, you know, I just, I remember feeling, being up there at the mic, feeling, thank God for Child USA, because I was able to really push them and you know, I felt like it really made a difference, and that's certainly what the senator told me later that it was very impactful. And it was because I was able to rely on the think tank of Child USA, and it, it's invaluable. It allows me to really, really get up there and and make a plea to folks to
0: to change their laws. It's, she was it's, amazingly impactful in Kansas. Once she found out how hard it was to fly to Kansas. <laughs> She had a moment when she wasn't going to go, but I knew she'd kill it. And she did. I mean, the media picked it up. I mean, it was so powerful. And then other states saw what she'd said there. This is a part of delivering a message of truth. And lawmakers can't walk away from the truth. They can walk away from the stories, which they do sometimes. Sometimes there's compassion fatigue. And I understand that. They just can't deny the facts. So really, uh, it's just it's a blessing to have Catherine able to go to each of the states and just get the message out there personally, but also so effectively.
1: I mean, I can tell you firsthand from having seen both of you do your work that you're absolutely compelling. And I would encourage anyone who's listening who, who didn't know who Marcy and Catherine were before this. I'm not sure how that's possible if you're in the work. To go and even just Google your names and people will be able to see some of the good your work you're doing in some of these different jurisdictions. And in terms of you talking about the anecdotal stories versus the data, I've seen it. I've spent a fair amount of time in the state house and seen lots of people testify. I've seen a lot of people say, yeah, that's really sad. And when we're all in the room, it's a somber feeling. And then they walk out of the room and it's gone. It's like, yeah, that was sad, but you know, here, money and data. I know that we have used, just like in our presentations and stuff, when we're trying to do community education efforts, we use Child USA data all the time. And that's another thing I want to point out is that that your website is updated every single week. That is a massive undertaking and so incredibly helpful because, you know, stuff's happening all of the time and you guys are just so on it, keeping everybody else informed. You know, to have the vision and the foresight to be able to put, organization together to be able to do that for everyone amazing like because <laughs> here we are however many years later and look how much we're relying on and how much you've grown which is just a testament to how much we needed it and so thank goodness you did do that because you're so right the data is what's going to drive these people to make these changes
0: yeah i mean the sad thing is is the truth is is that adults prefer and protect adults instinctively and it is so easy to talk to any adult and to bring up a children's issue, and it immediately gets filed to a lower level on the scale. And it's, it's not out of bad motives. It's out of being an adult. <laughs> and, and, and children are unformed, and you know we think they're going to be fine, but someone's got to put them at the table. And so that's, that's the dream, is how do we put children's issues at the table so they can't be ignored? And it's with data, and it—it's it, just really—it's it, the only way it works. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about there was one time, Marcy, we
2: were in the Judiciary Committee in New York, and remember, a lot of the survivors had pictures—they had photos of yeah. you know this is very common photos of when you're a child when yeah. when the abuse happened, and that's totally changed now. So now what we're doing is. We're, we have the photos, I can tell my personal story. I'm sure I, if, if I gave enough detail, I could squeeze a couple of tears out of folks, but that's not enough, as, as Marcy just said. So now not only do we have photos, so that's, like the, that's the old book. Now we've got a whole new book, right? We show the photos and we show the data. We show the numbers, the scientific evidence, the social science evidence. And then when we start to tell them, by the way, of what's happening around the country, I mean, shame goes a long way, yeah. <laughs> you know, and yeah. and really, you know, telling folks, well, you know, compared to all these other states, this is where you are.
1: That's very compelling, especially in an election year. <laughs> Absolutely. In. And- I definitely want to get into the data here in a second. And we're going to focus, you know, today mostly on civil statute limitation reform. But I just want to make sure I point out for everyone else that that's only one thing that you guys do. You're doing abuse and neglect of athletes, family court reform, conversion therapy, medical neglect and vaccinations, amicus advocacy, child marriage, child sex abuse as a whole. And so I just want to make sure that everybody knows that this is only what we're talking about today is only one part of the work that you guys are doing. And, you know, luckily for me, is how we were able to to meet each other and hopefully helping with some of that work for you guys that's what we're going to focus on today but you guys do so much more than that like you really are true warriors in this fight for kids and to help protect kids both the ones who've already been abused and the ones who unfortunately are going to be abused because that is the way that it is Let's go ahead and launch into then the civil statute of limitations reform. Marcy, can you explain, because I just want to make sure that we are being very informative for everyone. What even is a civil statute of limitations for child sexual abuse and why it is that we need reform? And I'm not just talking about Indiana, but in the entire country.
0: Sure. So a statute of limitations is just the arbitrary deadline for going to court. It applies in both the criminal side and the civil side on the criminal side. The criminal statute of limitation is the time you have until you can file charges, criminal charges. Most of those criminal claims have expired in most of the states for the vast majority of adult victims. The question is, what do you do about them? And the answer is, well, the civil statutes of limitations. And these are the arbitrary deadlines for coming forward. Now, there was a time 20 years and and longer In the United States, here's the amount of time you would have as a child sex abuse victim to go to court and sue whoever caused your abuse. You had two years from the date of the event. So if you were seven years old, you had all of up to age nine. And and of course, we never heard about it because nobody was going to sue at the age of nine. Uh, Then most of the states moved it up to age of majority, age 18 plus two. Well, that was age twenty, and our, you know, twenty-year-olds? Uh, they're almost old enough to, you know, be twenty-one. What happened is we started to have this science of child traumatology, and we learned that the average age for most victims of child sex abuse to come forward is fifty-two. That's why you don't hear about it because people don't come forward on average for decades. What's what's very you know, an anecdote I think that will help people to understand is there are a lot of victims out there that wait until one of their parents or both of their parents die before they come forward because they don't want to hurt their parents. I hear it again and again, and it is just one of those forces, part of the effect of the trauma that you just keep it to yourself. So if that's true, uh, in every state was it around age 20 or age nine? we were missing out on the vast majority of victims. And that's why you ended up with these massive cover-ups. It's not just the Catholic church, it's not just the universities, it's not just the schools, it's the whole culture. And it's especially the family, where about a third of perpetrators are close family relatives. It just became clear to me that if those are the numbers, if that's what's going on, then you've just got to get rid of the statute of limitations for child sex abuse. It's not like any other statute of limitations. Uh, you know, there's no statute of limitations for murder. They're very short for contract claims because you want predictability about who owns what and who owes what. Uh, it, we just weren't doing it right. And it was out of ignorance and denial in a ball, all wound up. And so what we have done is to make the argument publicly look Uh, You've got to let these victims get justice. But the more I worked on it over the years, getting justice is incredibly important for the victims. But here's the other part of it, it's the public interest. The public does not know who the perpetrators are because the victims can't go to court. And so what happens is, is you never learn who your operating perpetrators are. And so that's why we need to revive expired civil statutes of limitations Because if you revive those, you're going to get people to talk about abuse that none of us knew about. So you've got a a teacher in the current public school. You've got a member of the clergy. You've got a coach. You've got a doctor still operating at a university with sports teams. All of these people are under the radar until a victim is empowered to name them. So this is all about victims, but also the, the public interest.
1: So, we're looking at it's not just getting justice for the people this has already happened to, but it's also looking forward so that we can try to prevent some of it. Because once you finally identify those people publicly, then maybe we'll do something about it. And I can tell you that in my practice, you know, I was a prosecutor for a really long time. It's a totally different ballgame than doing civil cases, which I found out pretty quickly. You know, I had no idea how bad it really was until I got over here. And I'm starting, we'll talk about the Indiana law specifically here in a bit, but you know, I'm getting calls where. I can't tell you how many calls we get where I cannot help them right now because the statute is long run and it's both, you know, child victims and adult victims. And those are really, really difficult calls to take because, you know, maybe there was a prosecution, maybe there wasn't, but for whatever reason, they're finally there. They're finally to that moment where they, they're ready to, to come out and talk about it. And then they make that call and, there's, there's not a damn thing that we can do for them. You know, and, and, so and the
0: horror is what's going on is that's the way our culture re-victimizes the victim. One of the things I worry the most with the Me Too movement is that the Me Too movement has encouraged all survivors to tell their story. What happens when you step up to the public microphone and you tell your story and then you have no capacity to do anything about it? Here's what happens you get the person you named trolling you on Twitter. Mm -hmm. You get uh, forces in our society now, because we're not holding Twitter and Facebook and others accountable, pushing you back. You get sued for defamation. So the Me Too movement (laughs) message has got to turn into not just saying your story, but being able to say your story on a platform of power And the only power that we can give these victims is to go to court. Um, That's the most meaningful power we can give them. So that's why we work so hard on this. And
2: you know, the other thing to think about is every time you take that call from a survivor and you say to yourself, I can't help them, essentially what that means is that kids are not protected. If you can't help them, that means that the laws are so weak the children right now in this moment are in harm's way. And that, that's, to me, the biggest tragedy of all is, you know, well, well, maybe they're both equal, but, you know, having survivors and victims not be able to have justice, but not to have justice and knowing that the lack of justice equals children being in harm's way. That's, that's really the, the frightening part for me.
1: Absolutely. And, um, you know, and what we are doing, and this is how we have established or I've established a relationship with the two of you is that I'm like, this is not good enough. I, I'm not just going to say no to you and turn you away. So that's why we're, we're trying to organize this effort in Indiana. And we're going to talk about nationally here in a second in the long journey that you both have been a part of. It's not good enough. And I refuse to take that for an answer. I refuse to tell people we can do nothing at all. Let's figure out how we can work together to change the law so that we can do something and maybe not just for you. But just like you said, let's We've got to do something about this so that we're protecting the kids in the future because they will continue to do it if they are not identified. If the spotlight is not put on them, they will lurk in the shadows as always and continue to prey on these kids, which leads me to my next question. This has been a long, arduous journey for both of you in multiple states, In just like we talked about, we're like, why? Why should it be? To us, it seems so obvious. So why is it so difficult in those legislatures? What are the opponents saying? What is their argument?
0: Well, let me just summarize and then Catherine can give you some, uh, some more details. There are two forces of nature in the legislative process that try to block these laws. One is the Catholic Church, which very few people understand how entrenched they are in state law, uh, legislatures. They have what's called the Catholic Conference in every state. They're already organized. They're already lobbying on abortion and contraception, foster care uh, parents. So they're already in that space, and they just simply add this as one thing they're going to block. But they're the public face. The real fist, the power of opposition to the victims is the insurance industry. And they are opposed because youth-serving organizations have insurance. It has traditionally covered negligence, and negligence includes negligent, negligently letting a child slip on a slippery sidewalk, and also negligently having an employee that you put near that child that you should have known was going to hurt them. So those two forces have been very, very challenging. Every success we have had has been because we have had to educate and persuade lawmakers that those two entities are on the wrong side of history, which they are. There's no question about it. It is a literal battle of, I, I've been called every name in the book. I, you know, I, I can't, the things that have been told the lawmakers about me, which are not true, it, it just, the more they push back, the more you know, oh, I, this is what we should be doing. I think Catherine probably has some more colorful stories about some of the things that we had to do in New York against.
2: Yes. Yes. Well, first of all, we we definitely get a lot of due process arguments and that they're there for a reason and memories fade and evidence disappears. And, you know, I, I always say, look at, There's not a law out there that that I've heard of that doesn't have an exception or an exception to the exception. Laws are about exceptions, and laws are based on really simple things called justice, reason, and common sense. And when we start to see the data that an organization like Child USA puts out there in the science that says, "Mm, we really should have an exception for this, or this law should change, they really can't argue with it. Now, Marcy and I and other advocates in New York did employ interesting lobbying and advocacy you know, events. I mean, we marched over the Brooklyn Bridge. We stood outside the Senate leader's home at seven in the morning. We, I, I don't think you were there for this one, Marcy, but I was at the Trump golf course uh, when the leader was having a fundraiser and many of us were out there with signs on a public street. So, you know, we, we really pushed it. We we really forced them to say, A, we're not going away. This is important, and children and survivors deserve this. And we got in their faces. We, you know, just never stopped, whether we were knocking on their doors or speaking at a press conference or marching over the Brooklyn Bridge, whatever it is that we were doing, and and really... I think we probably hadn't fully run out of ideas yet Marcy, had we? No. We had a no. <laughs> we, we had a lot of tricks up our sleeves and we were <laughs> we're passionate and adamant about the protection of children and notions of justice. We were going to put it right in front of them as much as we could.
1: It's amazing and I want to talk I definitely want to talk a little bit more about New York in a moment because that I know that was probably one of your if not the longest one that you've had to work on, and I don't want to steal your thunder here, but I'll let you talk about how it ultimately uh, ended out this year. I want to talk about just 2019 at large for a minute because I think arguably it was your most successful year yet. There were a lot of successes last year and I would like to hear a little bit about that both big picture wise but like examples from some of the states things happened last year and I know some of them it felt like it was never going to happen. If you don't mind just giving me a few of those and then we'll end with New York on that because it's my favorite one.
0: (laughs) <laughs> you know, we, we kind of hit a tipping point at the end of 2018 between Epstein and the grand jury report coming out of Pennsylvania and the Larry Nasser case and the, and the sentencing hearing. There was this huge momentum to do the right thing. 2019 turned out to be the year where we could finally get the New York bill passed. Now, we started, I started in New York in 2003. So that was a 16-year battle, I can tell you, the very first press conference that the sponsor and I called, nobody attended, including lawmakers, nobody was interested, nobody wanted to hear about it, nobody wanted to talk about it, so it took that long to build it up. By 2019, with New York's passage, everybody knew it had been going on forever, then you saw the dominoes fall. And I mean, I, I would not have told you at the beginning of 2019 that we would have had North Carolina, Arizona, and Montana pass windows. In fact, I would have told you not possible. 2019 was truly amazing. The biggest changes were in Vermont, in New Jersey, and California. Vermont actually just erased the statute of limitations. It will never, ever be a defense again. in oh, a And I mean, it's just incredible. and and, and really spearheaded by a trial lawyer that we had been working with for years, really smooth and streamlined process. New Jersey, we had been working on for 14 years, but New Jersey ended up passing one of the best bills in the country because it's a two-year window that opens a window for victims abused as children and victims of sexual assault as adults. It's the most capacious of uh, the windows in terms of age doesn't matter. So you've got two years in the state of New Jersey. But California had already had the first window in 2003, and then as of January 1st, 2020, they now have a three-year window. But their major innovation is that if there is a coverup, the victim can get treble damages for the abuse because of the coverup. And that is something that no other state has done. And that window will be open for three years. So lots of activity, really impressive stuff. But I'd say those three are the headliners.
1: In terms of New York, you know, you said it was really long, long, 16 years. I know New Jersey is 14 years, but 16 years. So, and you've talked, Catherine, you talked already a little bit about some of those different strategies and things that you had employed. How did it finally happen? Like what finally happened to get them there?
2: You know, I, I really do. Th- I think it was several factors. You know, I, I do think the Me Too movement was a factor. I think just what Marcy just spoke about, the 15, 16-year fight. I mean, I, I was in New York, I think, 13 or 14 years. You know, again, testifying, press conferences, just in their face, just n- never giving up. I mean, I really don't ever want to go back to Albany again. We were there a lot. I think I think the blue wave was a factor. So the political changes that happened were a factor. I think data, you know, the data that was coming out of Child USA was a big factor. I think that that shifted, and I also think the power of the press. I think uh, the New York Daily News. Hats off to them. They were dogged in this and just they never gave up. They gave it a lot of press. And they gave it a lot of press when other people were growing tired of it. They, they stayed on top of it. And I, I think really those five factors were, were the magic,
0: I think. I have to point something out. With, okay. I've got to combine it with Governor Cuomo. And I, I give Catherine 100% credit for getting Governor Cuomo because we went to a meeting and we did not have much success, we felt. And she, the next day, was on the cover of the New York Daily News. Basically, what, what, what was the language on the cover, Catherine? Governor, you're either with us or with the perpetrators. Right.
2: I mean, that, I think was I said that brutal. I, I think I said that in the press conference. That's what I said. I said, where's the governor on this? Like, you're either with us. It's like, either or, you're either with us or with the perpetrators. And then, yes, Marcy's right. The next
0: day, I was on the cover with that. <laughs> and so the next day we were in a meeting with governor cuomo for two hours yeah
1: amazing that
0: was a major turning point yeah. the governors have been very important on these issues
1: that's awesome. And I know that Governor Cuomo is getting a lot of national attention right now. Everybody's very impressed with his leadership during the pandemic, myself included. That is so awesome that you were on the cover of the New York Daily News. Did you did you know that was coming or did you just like get up the next day and be like, what the hell? Well,
2: no, I didn't. But I didn't care. You know, I, I really just I, I really wanted I wanted to know the answer to the question, you know, um, it was great. Yeah. You know, it's funny, my mother said to me the other day, is he really like that? Is he really like that? Meaning Governor (laughs) Cuomo? And I said, yes, he is a great leader and a really good man. Yeah. So
0: we were super authentic.
2: He's just so authentic.
0: It it was a blessing to work with him. I now call his, his daily press conferences church with Governor Cuomo. I go to church every day now.
1: I love it. I do too. It's it's just such, you know, in times like these, you really need calm leadership who's pointing out the importance of it and the, the dire circumstances, but also is giving you hope. For the yeah. future, and so I, I guess I, I should say I'm not surprised at all that he came through for you guys and was there, and I'm sure was a major part of that being successful. Did you did you have any long term allies within the state house in Albany that um, really helped, or was it yeah. a lot of different people?
0: Well, I mean it, it it was a different people. I mean the original sponsor ended up not winning re election at one point. Uh, you know, a new senator came in that turned out to be the leader, um, Senator Brad Hoylman. It was a little bit of that, but there was real constancy of me and Catherine and our friend Steve Jimenez just being in their face for all those years. That, That was the constant.
1: That's great. I mean, it's just, I don't know, when you finally see, I can't imagine how much, how rewarding it was and how good it felt after working for so hard for so many years to see it finally come to fruition. And obviously, it's something that we're hoping for in Indiana as well. And I kind of want to transition to that. The Civil statute of Limitations in Indiana is not generous. In fact, in my opinion, it's pretty darn unfair. And just to make sure that the listeners know, it's different for adults versus children for adults. It's two years period it's just two years uh after the harm which is crazy because as most of us know anybody who's doing this work that is not nearly enough time especially I think if there's a prosecution I think oftentimes the survivor is just maybe they've just gotten through the prosecution and they need some time to breathe and by the time they come up for air it's gone the the statutes passed. I don't think a lot of people know that it's so stringent and then in terms of kids it's absolutely insane too because it's essentially, I'm not going to get too far in the weeds because it, the law is a little convoluted. Shocking, shocking. Essentially, it's, it's when the child turns 25 years old. And as you, Marcy mentioned earlier, the average age of disclosure is 52. So this is like absolutely insane. So Catherine, can you just kind of tell us your thoughts on the Indiana statue and what you think is needed here?
2: I would like to see Indiana extend their statue limitations to at least age 53. Because again, that would reflect the data of the average age of 52. So I think that that's something that we should push for. And certainly uh, we need a window, preferably a two or three year window. Uh, I believe in in one of the bills that were was introduced last year, it was a one year window, I believe. Mm -hmm. But I think as we're seeing in other states that a one year window isn't always enough. That's why some states, I think we've had three states, right, Marcy, that have introduce second and third windows. So we're, you know, we're seeing that you need, it takes, you know, uh, in order to really sort of educate folks and do public service announcements so survivors know that they have this opportunity, and also just to make a shift in the understanding in our society, in the understanding of the law and what's out there. I think in order for Indiana to do the right thing for justice, purposes and also to protect their children they should extend their statute of limitations to at least age 53 even 55 and i think a 2 year window would allow those hidden predators to be identified so those older survivors could come forward and identify those hidden predators and even perhaps those institutions that have really poor practices and those poor practices put children in danger and until they're held accountable, they're likely not going to change those practices. That's that's what I would hope for.
1: Now, we talked a little bit about all of the successes in 2019. Do you think there are any states that are similar to Indiana, maybe in terms of demographics or population or culture, where you have had this success?
2: Marcy, I think we we mentioned this. I think if I look to all of the states, it would likely be Arizona was a bit of a surprise—an yes. odd nineteen-year, uh, nineteen-month, excuse me, window. Nineteen year would be nice. I think North North Carolina was also a bit of a surprise. They had a two-year window. Marcy, can you think of another state
0: that would be close to I Indiana? Mean, no, nobody expected Montana, mm-hmm. right, and Montana right. came up with with a window as well. And and you know, again, it was they reached a tipping point in educating the public and it it, it does get to a point where lawmakers just can't say no anymore, right? They can't explain it, right? I mean, how long can you go where all you're doing is protecting predators? That's just, it's hard to defend, but Indiana is not really in a, in a very different place from North Carolina, Arizona, in particular uh, Montana. So, uh, you know, a, a lot, there's so much, Focus on New York. That we've had some Midwestern states say to us, "Oh, this is just kind of a northeastern movement." And That's just not true. Just not.
2: Yeah. Look at Senator Boyer. Look at Senator Boyer in in Arizona. I mean, sometimes it just takes a, a a political leader to say, you know, this just isn't right. You know, and often we found that they either they have a family member or a friend, or even perhaps are a survivor themselves, or they're just a really the person who sees the data and says this isn't right, we really need to protect kids and survivors deserve justice and institutions need to clean up their acts, and they they get up and they champion uh, champion the bill and you know that's what Senator Boyer did in in Arizona. He was you know really praised as he should have been. He was probably also attacked by the other side, but <laughs> sometimes it takes a leader like that, a leader that really has integrity and believes in justice and will
1: get up there and really fight that tough fight. We mentioned earlier a little bit, I think, about um, Senator Aaron Freeman. He wrote the bill in the 2019 session. I believe that he's going to write another one in 2020. So I'm very hopeful that we're going to have that legislative leadership to get the job done. And one other thing I want to ask in that vein is, what can our listeners do to help affect that change? Is there any kind of call to action that we can give the people who are tuning into this and who care about the issue and want to make that change? What can they do? Marcia, you want to dive in? or
0: So the key here is everybody needs to understand that uh, this is an issue that lawmakers don't hear a lot about until they hear a lot about it. Even if only three to five people call a lawmaker's office, they can make a big difference survivors across the state should call their own legislative representatives. So call the House, call the Senate, and just tell them simply, we deserve justice. And share your story if you with one of the aides of the senator or the representative. It can make a huge difference.
2: Yeah, and I, I also think the other thing is that to educate the public and to share with the public parents, grandparents, people that care about children, which is most people, right People who care about children have to understand that one in four girls and one in six boys are going to be sexually assaulted before they're eighteen. so they probably know someone or will know someone or maybe know several someones that are have been harmed or going to be harmed, and that it's really the other epidemic in our society it 's really you know the voice of the people especially parents, grandparents, teachers, people that really care about children to be that voice for children. And I think when the public understands that they really can do something, like Marcy said, to reach out to their elected officials and to share stories, even write letters you know, to the editor, submit opinions, just get noisy, you know, just get noisy. And, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And, and if you really care about children,
0: as we all do, just to get out there. And let me say that it doesn't just take us to give the facts. Anybody should think, feel free, go to childusa.org law. And there's so much stuff on statute of limitations that you can flood their uh, emails with the facts. Feel free to share them. That's what they're there for.
1: I love that. Thank you. So it's such great great advice. I think that sometimes people don't think that their voice matters and it does. You know, when you're the person who's experienced it or you're the loved one those persons experienced it, that's where it's going to start. And you got to get people's attention and then you all have done the data. So we have that to back it up with. It just seems like it could be a really effective way to try to really get something done here. I want to move a little bit into a different direction now because we've talked about it a little bit, touched on it a little bit here and there during the course of our conversation. The big thing we've got going on right now is COVID. I want to talk a little bit about what the most pressing issues involving child abuse during COVID are and what y'all are um, trying to do to help combat that. So Marcy, if you want to start, I'd love to hear more about Child USA's WATCH program.
0: So we, on March 11th, we initiated the WATCH program, which is what about the children during COVID-19. The truth is, is there's a lot of reason to be concerned because suddenly mandated reporters are not around our children. At the most, you might have a teacher, but it's remote, and we know that very sizable number of children aren't even hooking up remotely because they either don't have a computer or they don't have good Wi-Fi. So that's one of our passions right now is trying to put those together. Another major concern is states have furloughed child protective service work as though they're not essential, and add to that, they don't have PPEs. So you have a child protective service worker in a state and their job is to go to five houses a day. What happens is they knock on the door and of course the people in the house say, well, we don't have to let you in because you're dangerous, number one. Number two, what happens is that if they don't have enough uh, gear, they'll share it with the office. We know anecdotally of an office in New Jersey that had two masks for the entire office for an entire month. It was, of course, disgusting by the end of it, not not safe. So one of the things that we've done is we partnered with Ford Motor Company to get face shields. They donated 500 face shields and we delivered those to three states. Now an organization, wonderful organization called Surviving, but Thriving has donated another thousand masks and we're sending those out to another five states. Our biggest concern is children are helpless right now. Mandated reporters gone, child protective services gone, they can't protect themselves, and we are fully expecting a disaster once the stay-at-home orders lift. And so that's what we're focusing on. You can find, we've got a video series and data and information on at childusa.org.
1: Yeah, it. Don't we have a checklist, I think, a tool for people to use? Yeah, we have.
0: And and we just posted today this wonderful script that was done by Leadership Council, our advisory council. What what Leadership Council did is they created a script for parents to have a, a cozy chat, sit down with your child, and here are the questions you should be asking to see how your child is doing. But also, maybe there's something that they haven't told you yet. Maybe there's something that you need to inform them about and understand for the future. It's beautifully written by some of the top social scientists, and I hope people will go and check it out and and sit down with their children and, and talk to them.
1: It's such a scary time for kids. I think that for a lot of people, you know, and rightly so, we're thinking about the healthcare workers and the people who are actually in, infected. Um, and it's absolutely terrifying. But I think it's hard to remember that these kids have had their safety nets removed. And Catherine, if you wouldn't mind speaking a little bit about your insight into how hard it is for a kid to be locked at home in the same place mm-hmm. where their abuser is.
2: Yeah, I just actually wrote an an op-ed on this because my abuse happened in the home. I have said repeatedly that school, academics, and basketball saved my life because I was able to be out of the house, not just to have that safety net of additional eyes on me, but also just a break from the stress, right? So I was pretty much... If I was home all the time, I would be in that constant fight or flight mode where, you know, the stress hormones would have just been soaring the whole time and just, you know, as we all know, can cause a lot of damage. So I can't, I can't even imagine being at that time with a pandemic and not being able to physically get out of the house, being able to be in, in an academic uh, setting where I was getting a lot of attention and... I could I had teachers' eyes on me, nurses, administrators, and then after school basketball, and just also the just the the value of having kids get out and exercise and you know how that reduces stress. So that was all literally, I believe, saved my life. So my heart just breaks now when I think about, you know, the vast majority of kids that are abused are in the home and what they're going through right now and it also scares me to think that the abusers are likely being stressed because they're confined they can't go out maybe they've lost their job and that's probably height you know triggering them to act out more so i i can only imagine the frightening situation that so many children across the country are are in right now
1: i was talking to somebody earlier this week and i was like you know they were complaining about their husband or something. You know, I'm like, listen, think about it. Tensions are running high for everyone right now. And even in a so called normal household where you don't have that kind of thing going on, everybody is like kind of at each other's throats. Now, think about how amplified that's going to be in a situation where you've got kids who are already in danger. I hope that's something that we all keep in mind. And I'm so thankful that you've developed this this checklist, this tool that people can go online and see and figure out maybe what they can be doing within their own communities or even families. I know I've taken up a lot of your time. So uh, at this point in time, I just want to ask if either of you has any closing thoughts, anything else that you think it's important for our listeners to know that we haven't covered yet.
0: You definitely have a future as a podcast host.
1: (laughs) (laughs) This is my second one. So I appreciate
0: that.
2: (laughs) Fantastic. I I would like to say to any survivor out there, you're not alone. And to the rest, um, for non-survivors, it's up to all of us to make this change. And I hope that we can all do it for the sake of children.
0: And just let me close with saying that one of my... Concerns among many is that if you find out that your child has been abused or your husband or people right now just Google things and it can be very triggering and damaging. Child USA on May 18th is launching a membership portal. It is a safe and comforting space to learn about sex abuse and insights from survivors, fiction, nonfiction, documentaries, videos is intended to be a resource and a support so that instead of going to Google and getting the worst of the worst, you'll find an informed and illuminating collection of issues. I hope people will look for that. I'm hoping it does as much good as I'm hoping it does.
1: What a wonderful resource. I mean, you guys just keep bringing it. You see the problems <laughs> and you keep figuring it out. Uh, I mean, I can't, there's no way I could begin to thank you enough for being here. The work you guys do is just so important and the persistence and determination that you display on behalf of kids is truly, is awe-inspiring. No one could possibly ever thank you enough for using your time and talent to protect these kids. And for our listeners to find out more about the great work that Marcy and Catherine do, we've mentioned it before, but again, their websites are childusa.org and childusaadvocacy.org. All of the tools that we've discussed today are found on the website. It's very super helpful, informative stuff. I would say certainly some of the best uh, resources in the nation for um, child abuse and neglect. And obviously, thank you to our listeners. If you're tuning in here, then you care. And if you find value in this, please continue to tune in and share it with friends and family. I'm so thankful for and grateful to everyone for listening. Be safe and be well. Thank you.